This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report, and we have a great program today. I am uh, very pleased. We'll talk with my old friend, Al Regnery, who is uh, has started up a new book publishing house, Republic Book Publishers, the last couple years, and he is uh, making sure conservative voices are heard across uh, many platforms. Jim Hansen was on earlier this week. Anyway, very fa- very interesting man, uh, Al Regnery. We'll talk with him. His name you might recognize. There is a big publishing house called Regnery that his father started, and he ran for a couple of decades. But years ago, he sold it, and then he got back in the business a few years ago. So we'll talk with him. We'll also talk with a man named Martin Dugard. Martin Dugard is the author of um, the co-author with Bill O'Reilly of the many killing books, you know, killing Lincoln, killing Kennedy uh, that were so popular and they continue to be popular. Well, he's got a new book out and the book is really interesting to me. It's about liberating Paris. And, you know, many of the historical aspects of World War II have been examined. Um, there's lots of ways, in many ways, you know, lots of ground that's already been covered multiple times. Well, this book, I have not seen this covered. It is the, um, it is the, uh, uh, the plan after Paris was occupied by the Nazis um, in, I think, 1941, then you had the situation where uh, the the allies of all different types, it started you know, with the, uh, the uh, English and also then the Americans when they got in the war, um, wanted to get back Paris. I mean, you had, and you had the French resistance uh, behind enemy lines and all. So it is real. It's called Taking Paris is the book. And we'll talk with him about that. Um, sorry, 19 France in 1940 is when the armies of Nazi Germany uh, went in and seized Paris. Extraordinary uh, book. And so we will uh, talk about that again, taking Paris, um, the... Um the let's see if I can get it right. The epic battle for the city of lights. Okay, well, there's an epic battle going on in America, and I got to highlight this for you. It's um, it's as we predicted um, all along. The uh, the left and the people in power are not going to say, "Oh, good, you want to take back your country? We'll uh, let that." No. Um, earlier Friday, uh, Merrick Garland, who is the Joe Biden of the Justice Department, meaning he's not really in charge. There's a woman in charge by the name of Lisa Monaco, a far left Obama uh, operator from the Obama White House, and she's really in charge. He's the number two at the Department of Justice. But Merrick Garland was trotted out to read his talking points as another white guy, another older white guy, to make it look like he's um, carrying water on this terrible, terrible issue of white supremacy and the threat against uh, of, of uh, racial attacks, et cetera, et cetera. And so he launched into, he, t- he described that there will be a lawsuit against the Georgia law passed by the legislature, signed by the governor, defended by the Republican Secretary of State, and the, um, the, the, the Attorney General of the United States, Merrick Garland, said, we must attack this law because the law, which does things like reform the absolutely out of control signature verification problem in Georgia, it limits um, when you actually get an absentee ballot, you have to have some kind of identification, uh, not none, and other kind of things that are, I think, common sense reforms. Well, Merrick Garland, not um, willing to just um, uh, defend, uh, I'm not just willing to take carry water for the Biden administration and the left that wants to continue. You know, uh, let me pause. What happened in 2020 was an extraordinary uh, effort by the left and the Democrats to use the crisis of COVID to try to take over the election system. That's one of the reasons we had drop boxes and so much early voting and all these lack of signature verification. It's something the left wanted for a long time. I do also believe, by the way, that they cheated. I think that's going to come out eventually. But be that as it may. 
they definitely changed a lot of the rules. I mean, tons of the rules. And they did it in courts and they did it in uh, through uh, uh, litigation as well as uh, through consent decrees. Georgia was one of them that went for a bad deal. There's a history book to be written on that. But now... We're not in the COVID, right? We're out of the COVID breakdown. We're out of the great, uh, you know, the Wuhan breakdown is what I call it. We're out of that. We're removed from that. And so now we should go back to at least the old normal. And in the case of a lot of Georgians, they said this wasn't a very good system and their elected officials passed laws to protect them. But now, again, we're to the point where the Democrats aren't willing just to say, oh, we want those other rules back. No, they're using their system of arguing, which is you're racist. That's what the argument. Merrick Garland did a press conference on Friday at 11 o'clock in the swamp, and he talked about lots of different things, but ultimately it was that the, the laws that Georgia are pushed are meant to suppress voters, and they're targeted at black people, and they're racist. Now, think about this. Earlier in the week, a federal court said that Joe Biden's policies, the law he signed, that's the American Relief Act, so-called, which gave lots of money to people, a bunch of the money in there was targeted for minority people, not based on need, just based on minority. And a federal judge said, no, no, you're racist. You're racist to do that. You're not allowed to say one uh, race over another, no matter what race you pick. You know, it's not about, this, this is the difference. If you have equality under the law, then it doesn't matter what your race. If you want equity under the law, then you pick and choose and prefer prefer some people, even if they're doing better, even if there's an African-American doing better than a white guy, you pick the African-American under equity because you're trying to um, you're trying to magically look into the past and say, this is what we should do to be good about our past failings, if there are any. Well, what we're seeing now is Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice weaponizing their government, remember the narrative machine. The narrative machine, big tech, big media, and big government. Big tech and big media are telling everyone there's racism. You're racist. You, you must be racist, especially if you're a Trump supporter. But, you know, there's too much racism. It's tearing us. We have to, we have to really address all this. There's so much racism, so much racism. What, what, wait a second. Most people are living their lives and seeing more progress in how everybody treats each other, whatever their race, than we've ever had in America. But it doesn't matter because the narrative machine is going big government, is going to swoop in and enforce the narrative. So now we have the Department of Justice putting all of its power. B please understand, when the Department of Justice weighs into a case, it's a big deal. They've got lots of lawyers. They've got lots of money. They've got lots of power. They've got lots of influence. Many, many of the federal judges and even state judges who are in uh, and make it to the bench are people who either served in the federal government or served in the clerkships in the federal system or or, or just are uh, uh, conditioned by their life choices as a profession to be respectful of the power of the Department of Justice. So it's a big deal that Justice Department is weighing in. But what is a bigger deal is how you, you need to see the building blocks of this whole system. It's not an insurrection on January 6th. The January 6th hoax is not, the January 6th hoax is not positioned as an insurrection by populist Americans. It's white supremacists, racists. You know, the movement to support Donald Trump is not about people that wanted to get somebody to fight for them. No, it's about people that are white supremacists and racists. When Joe Biden was off stumbling around Europe almost incoherently, a hundred million dollar announcement came out of the White House. They said, we're addressing threats in our domestic uh, in our d the homeland and those threats are 
racism, white supremacy. So they're building blocks, the building blocks that are going, the woman that pled guilty on Thursday to misdemeanor trespass and the January 6th hoax. She was talked into pleading by her liberal public defender who's supposed to fight for her and instead taught her to say it's white fragility. And I've studied it and I now see the problems with my positions. This is what's happening. This is this is the effort to do you have you have only two choices you can either start to self-censor and 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 ascribe to yourself the opinions of the the Merrick Garlands of the world that it's racist and we must address it or you will be targeted You'll be Rudy Giuliani, you'll get your law license targeted. You'll be Sidney Powell, you'll get your nonprofit targeted. You'll be General Flynn, you'll get your liberty targeted. You'll be the January 6th hoax detainees. You'll, be, you'll have your liberty and life destroyed. You go on and on and on down the line. If you don't ascribe to yourself, you have to, get, have to come out and say, I see it now. I see it now. I, I see clearly now. Merrick Garland's right. We, we, have, a, we have something we have to overcome. We, we're all racist. Well, by the way, we're not all racist. White people are racist. Everybody else is not. There's no black people that are racist. That's not fair because they're black. That's what they're teaching you. It's nonsense, of course. It's not. There can be racists of any color, and if there are, they should be, uh, you know, condemned and they should be described as such. And I hope you don't know any. I hope you're not one. But that's what's happening. The Department of Justice is swinging in. As I told you, the, nar- the great narrative machine is now swinging into action and it will challenge in each of the states. And what will happen is you'll have federal judges making decisions and we'll be going up to courts and we'll have black robed oligarchs in charge of our lives. And you'll get all the way up to the Supreme Court and they'll put the Supreme Court on the dock in the, in the docket. We'll be facing that. And then everyone will complain. We've never seen this. It's it's amazing. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk with Al Regnery about the importance of raising voices. In this fray, he wants to help raise voices. The new uh, publisher of uh, Republic Book Publishers. We'll talk with him. And later on, Martin Dugard. We'll talk about when there was a real resistance uh, in uh, in Paris, outside of Paris in France. Take a break and be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Many of my listeners have been uh, have been following my, uh, I'm like a fan of the Republic Book Publishers and so many of their authors. In fact, earlier this week, Jim Hansen was on. It was phenomenal. Uh, if you go to republicbookpublishers.com, you'll see all the different authors. Uh, I am like a, I'm a devotee of uh, John Cribbs, whose book is Old Abe, which is really, really good. But the guy behind this, well, one of two guys behind this is Al Regnery, who has a great history in publishing and in conservative uh, leadership for decades and decades. And so as we talk about Republic Book Publishers, which is interesting enough, uh, the real topic, uh, Al, that I want to ask you about is this cancel culture, because you've lived through the ebb and flow of different periods of time where, you know, um, there'll be scrutiny of, of popular authors. In just a few moments, you know, I'll have Martin Dugard on, who's written these books with Bill O'Reilly, and Bill O'Reilly got canceled or maybe maybe just got uh, in trouble, whatever you'd say it. But this ebb and flow, there, there's been nothing like this, what we're going through right now in terms of, of cancel culture and scrutiny of conservatives, and frankly, I think the effectiveness of it. And I thought, uh, let's ask Al his perspective. So welcome, Al Regnery, and and um, what do you think of the moment we're in? Well, thank you, Ed. Great to be with you, as always. Um, it's it's uh, difficult. I mean, it's basically what, what the problem is, is that most book publishing in this country is dominated by five huge companies, four of which are right. owned outside the United States. And two of the big ones, Random and, and Random House and Simon Schuster, are in the 
um, midst of, of a merger trying to, to, to combine, which they will do, into one ma- massive company. They are part of the right. media, and they are basically, um, the employees are largely lefties, um, and they publish a few conservative books, primarily if you've got, if you've got an author that's a celebrity and has a platform, they're going to sell a lot of books, so they do that. But for the most part, on thoughtful books, on a lot of conservative books, on authors that are not celebrities, they want nothing to do with it. And it, it, it used to be that way back in, oh, in the 70s and the 80s, I guess. And then they discovered, um, when I was running, regularly publishing my family's business, um, we started publishing bestseller after bestseller. They recognized that there was some money to be made here, so they started these imprints. Mm-hmm. We accept them down for the most part now um, because it's just the thing to do, you know, and they are run largely by people that bounce back and forth between the New York Times and the Washington Post and Random House or whatever it is. And um, so they, you know, they, they are going to publish what they want to, what they want to hear, and what they think they're the people they go to dinner with want to hear. And so that means it, it's tough for the um, for conservatives. So we started this new company a couple of years ago, and then um, I was sort of prophetic. I mean, it's gotten the woke, woke business and the cancel culture has gotten much worse, as of course as you know, in the last year or so. And so we're seeing um, manuscript after manuscript and proposal after proposal come in. And that, um, you know, are, they're, they're wonderful books in many cases. They need to be published, and we're happy to do it. Uh, we're talking again with Al Regnery and his uh, his uh, company's RepublicBookPublishers.com, Republic Book Publishers. And if you go there right now, I'm looking at these books, you know, 19th Hijacker by James Reston Jr., guys, really famous. Uh, the Decline of Nations, Joseph F. Johnston Jr., very well-known, very well-regarded uh, lawyer and, and now historian. So, but, but you know, I, I looked at one of the books, is Casey Mulligan on You're Hired about Trump. It uh, Why, Al, Al, in the business of, of making money, there's at least 75 million people that run through fire for Trump. Why don't they want to sell to them? I mean, look, CNN made money, printed money for four years. Now they got rid of Trump or participating, get rid of Trump. And now they're, they're I don't know if they're losing money, but they're losing uh, ratings. I would have thought the natural adju- a natural adjustment was to make money off that group, as you just described. But somehow in this environment, it's you shut them off, even if you're biting off your nose to spite your face. You know, part of it, Ed, is the fact that they don't want to go to a dinner party. Kids to be criticized in school or their wife comes back and said, you know, I was at the country club today and they're all on my case because you're doing this or that. And I think that even even if if they think they should do it. They just don't want to go there. And that's uh, the, the left recognizes that. I mean, that's part of what cancel culture is all about, is that we can mm-hmm. we can criticize them, we can call them racists, we can call their kid racists or whatever it is, and they will go away. And I just think that, um, that that's a big part of it. Again, we're talking with Al Regnery, and again, the website is republicbookpublishers.com. It's the Republic Book Publisher, if you go find it. Lots of great titles. Um, Al, is the, um, it's also true that it's harder to make money, right? I mean, in, in, in a different period, people bought books. Now they buy ebooks. Uh, maybe they don't read as much. I don't know if any of this is true. I'm just kind of brainstorming. I mean, the business has gotten more complicated as people's habits have changed. Is, am, I, am I right on that? I'm, I'm saying it like I know it. I don't know if I know it, though. No, it never was very good. 
um, you know, and the, <laughs> the book publishing business is tough. There's no question. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you, the, you, books are hard to sell. Uh, they're expensive to do. Um, you know, you've, I mean, from the time you somebody writes one, the editorial process, and then the marketing, and all those other things. Yeah, I mean, there, there some kinds of books sell well. I mean, you know, romance novels you sell a lot of them, that sort of thing. But a book, a nonfiction book on a serious topic, um, you know, if you can sell ten or twelve, fifteen thousand copies, that's a huge amount. And you're living in mm-hmm. a city there's fifteen thousand people within half a mile on you. I mean, it's, you know, it's not it's not a big right. Thing. And um, it's a it, it is a very it can be for the small size that it is, it can be extremely influential. I mean, books change through the world, no question about it. A big a new nonfiction book on something can revolutionize a whole um, philosophy, a whole area, whatever else. Um, it can disclose things and. You know, a lot of things flow from that, but the book itself makes maybe a little money, maybe not. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's, it's still that way. Um, e-books are a good thing for everybody. I mean, you don't have to print them for one thing, so that expense is much lower, and they're, they're cheaper. Right. And um, this, that's a good thing. And, um, you know, I have always said that if you look at anybody's library, there are an awful lot of books that never got read. And I thought if a publisher said, oh, I only had to sell books that people had really read, then you would go broke because people give <laughs> presents and whatever and you put them on the shelf. And, um, right. you know, from that standpoint, that's a good thing. But, um, so yeah, it's, yeah it, 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 I mean, even if you go back and read about when Charles Dickens was publishing things, you know, 150 years ago, it was still tough. So it's not, mm-hmm. from that standpoint, it, it hasn't really changed a lot. Uh, again, we're talking with Al Regnery, uh, founder and uh, leader, along with uh, Eric Campman of uh, Republic Book Publishers. If you go to their website, republicbookpublishers.com, you'll see all these different books, lots of different topics. I mentioned Old Abe. I've had a bunch of these folks on, but I want to ask you about one of the books. I don't I think I don't ever think I had this guy on. His name is Alec Klein, and he wrote a book called Aftermath about being, oh, by the way, Jesse Lee Peterson, who's been on the show, who's really a great uh, kind of um, uh, voice right now. He's got a book, The Antidote, Healing America from the Poison of Hate and blame and victimhood. I want to make sure to mention that. But so Klein does this book that's really actually on wrongful accusations and this sort of tumult of his life turning upside down. It's it's actually, uh, Al, kind of haunting for me. I, I I got a copy. I think Dean Drazen, your guy, sent me one, and I thought, oh, what's this about? And I started in, and I was like, whoa, this is really, uh, it turns your stomach. And in this environment, because he's, he's, he's falsely accused of something, and his life's falling apart, and how he handles it, and what happens, and it's not exactly a um, doesn't turn out great. I mean, all along the way, it's just it's devastating, and yet it feels like what they're doing to a lot of people in a way. Because even Klein, I think he had done something. He hadn't been perfect. I think he says that he like his marriage or whatever. So it wasn't like he's saying, "Look at me, I'm a good guy," and getting uh, persecuted. Well, we got these people being persecuted now. I mean, it feels like we're at a moment where that book fits this moment a little bit more than ever you oh, might have does. expected I mean, when you in, got it a few years ago. In Klein's. Klein's case, I mean, he there were accusations against him. He was a professor at Northwestern University, and ultimately basically forced him out of school, and the accusations were not accurate at all. Um, but one right. of the things is that, that they saw that this basically destroyed their life. I mean, it, the, 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 uh, the culture is so 
acidic now that people hate each other so much that if they can destroy, destroy somebody's life because they disagree with them, they'll do it. You know, somebody I was talking to the other day said in politics, it used to be that you disagreed with somebody and they went to dinner again uh, together. Now you right, disagree with right. somebody and they want you dead. You know, they don't want to even talk to you. They, they think you should you should never be allowed to say anything again. And that's part of the whole thing. If you can destroy somebody's life with going after them personally, they'll do it because they disagree with you. And that's a terrible thing. It is. It's the worst yeah, thing for democracy. Yeah. It's the worst thing for culture. You know, we, this is the, 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 we can't survive with this. It's got to get back where we can talk to people that we disagree with. And, you know, um, then let's say, then have a drink together. Yeah, well, it's um, it's uh, it's very good. Uh, I've I've told you, and I'll run me truth in advertising is a friend of mine. So, but Republic Book Publishers is really good, really valuable. Thanks, Al, for coming on RepublicBookPublishers.com. We'll put it up on social media. And we'll share, and we'll have some more authors on pretty soon. Appreciate it very much, Al. Thanks so, thanks so much for having me on. All right, we'll take a break, everybody. Be right back. Okay. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Been looking forward to this interview for a long time now. Martin Dugard is the co-author of the Killing series with Bill O'Reilly. The book after book, one after another, has been a bestseller, but also really, really well-written, kind of moving through history, killing Kennedy, killing Patton. Um, amazing. But he's got a new book coming out in just a few weeks. It's uh, probably a couple months now, called Taking Paris, the Epic Battle for the City of Lights. Uh, Martin Dugard joins us. How are you, sir? I'm great. Uh, hey, thanks for having me on. Well, it's great to have you on. And the liberation of Paris, for people that need to know, that Paris fell in uh, 1940, and it was really not liberated for just over four years. So four years later. But in the description of your book, which I haven't read your book yet, but I wanted to have you on because in just uh, 10 days will be the uh, the birthday, the 100th birthday of a guy named Jack Singlob, who was in the French resistance. He was American uh, Jedberg, one of these military guys dropped behind lines, and when you read the descriptions of taking Paris, it was, yeah, okay, as you point out, uh, Churchill was involved, Roosevelt was involved, Patton, uh, de Gaulle, but there were these resistance fighters, and over 120,000 Parisians were were killed under the German occupation. I mean, this was a city under siege. So first of all, how'd you get to this one? You've been writing these killing books. How did this story, uh, this, this historical thing grab your attention? Uh, you know, I, I wrote history before I started working with Bill, and we had a gap between killing books, and uh, uh-huh. <laughs> I wanted to do a solo project. And I thought, you know, let's do something World War II. Uh, and this book was basically supposed to be about just the last four weeks of, of the of Paris being occupied. It would start with George Patton. It would go into the liberation right. of the city. Uh, but as I began writing, I, I realized to tell the story, uh, you know, all the way through to give it uh, context, I had to start with May 1940 in, in the fall of Paris and then take it all the way through and tell the story of the resistance, tell the story of um, the people of Paris, the atrocities in Paris, and, you know, also have, you know, Patton and, and Churchill and de Gaulle and all the other things. It's again, we're talking with Martin Dugard, and you can go to his website, uh, Martin, like my name, Martin, and then Dugard, D U G A R D dot com, and you can see all of his different books there and uh, and a blog and other things. Um, okay, so four years, people don't realize the scope of uh, of the occupation because you know, the uh, Americans' kind of memory is okay, well, we we got in the war, and you know, we kind of think we telescope everything together. I mean, Paris was transformed, but Germany didn't burn it down, right? 
they they killed a lot of people, but they didn't destroy the city, did they? Didn't. And so what happened was, you know, the people of Paris, they, they loved the city so much that they made it an open city as the Germans approach, which means that they didn't defend it. They didn't have any armament. So when the Germans came, they literally just walked in. Um, and, and, you know, when the Germans captured, I'm getting into the weeds here, but when the Germans uh, captured, for instance, Poland, they burned every place down. They assassinated people. They killed partisans. Uh, yeah. In Paris, yeah. At, the very, at, at, at the first with Paris, they were so delighted to control Paris that they, they pretended like, hey, we're just visitors. We're just having fun. Everybody just get on with your lives like you normally would. But then as the resistance started acting out, as the people of Paris began to rebel about the German presence, then it got ugly. That's when people started getting shot. That's when they took away all the food. And, uh, and then it just became more and more violent, more and more desperate than people of Paris. Uh, but but again, when when so when the liberation finally happens, is Paris broken? I mean, would you say you know its infrastructure shot and the people are shot? I mean, how, what's the? I guess the next book is what's the recovery look like because Paris that we know <laughs> you know th- thrived again. Yeah, you know it's a crazy thing that the Germans had wired every single bridge over the Seine to blow, and uh, uh-huh. at the last minute, at the last minute, uh, von Schultes, the German general who was, was in charge of the city, decided not to destroy the city, uh, even though Hitler kept uh, telegramming him about every hour saying, is Paris burning? Is Paris burning? Because Hitler wanted the city just destroyed like Stalingrad. He wanted to knock to the ground. Um, so in, in the way I tell the story, too, is I, I try not to make it like this dry history. I try to tell it like a killing book, you know, very fast-paced, very, you are there, you know, told in the present tense. It's one of those things where people should feel as if uh, it's a page turner. It's the kind of book you take to the beach. Yeah. Uh, we're t- again, we're talking with uh, Martin Dugard and about his book, which is coming out in in a uh, in a few um, in a few months, and it's called uh, "Taking Paris: The Epic Battle for the City of Lights." Uh, Martin, I did want to bring you on. I mentioned Singlob General. He became a general. Singlob turns a hundred on July tenth, and he was one of these Jedbergs. Uh-huh. And one the the, yeah. the 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 thing that was extraordinary about this. By the way, you guys should do you sh- you should probably do it. I don't know how you do killing killing Jedbergs doesn't work. Although the, a lot of them died actually. I mean, mo- there were about four hundred Jedbergs Americans, and I think. A hundred survived because they were dropped behind the enemy lines. But I, I, I guess I want to, when we saw in the last four years that the the opposition to Trump was called the resistance. That was really comical compared to the resistance. These were people that were being executed if you got caught or killing themselves if they got caught so they wouldn't rat on everybody and and actually organizing the the nation which was under occupation. Right? I mean that that part of this story, this resistance, which was led by lots of different uh, facts and wasn't always clean and easy is is extraordinary moment in history. Well, it's what's amazing to me about it is that you had people before the war who were just average people, you know, scientists and shopkeepers and, uh, you know, nobody right. special, nobody with, nobody with military training. Um, and it took it upon themselves to do some amazing acts espionage, uh, you know, uh, single-handedly, um, you know, undoing German supply trains, uh, amazing stuff. And they basically taught themselves how to resist. And they took their cue from uh, the Huguenot resistance from the 18th century. And uh, mm. that's where the, where the term resistance came from. And, uh, yeah, it's like the same thing when people say compared to COVID with being, you know, the Paris occupation, you know, having to, you know, wear masks and uh you know, not be able to go out of your house for a while. And it's, it's ludicrous. People make these, these huge leaps. Now, and I, I, I for myself, can't imagine what it was like, 
to to live in an occupied city like that with a, the constant threat of, of death or someone knocking at your door and two o'clock in the morning to haul you away. It's it was very, very bad. It is amazing. All right, a couple more things because we're I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna when the book comes out, isn't the book coming out in September? Is it September seventh the book comes out? The the this one we're talking September about 7th. taking yeah. Okay, good. So we're we're early, but I want to do that because I mentioned I want to talk about this topic and build up to it over these couple of months. I'll come back to it. I'll probably try to have you back on again. But I got to come up with some other things because – and Martin Dugard has written all these books with Bill O'Reilly, which means probably everybody thinks you write them and O'Reilly yells at you. But we'll just leave yeah. that aside. But what on your website, martindugard.com, what is the paper Kenyan? I mean, it's a blog, but how would you get the title? Uh, I took it. You probably get the reference. George Plimpton, who was the great sports writer. Oh, uh, right, right, right. Yeah. He right. wrote the book, The Paper Lion, about, remember he, yep, he, yep, he yep, played quarterback yeah, for the Lions yeah. for summer? And so right. I'm, a, I'm a distance runner. My my hobby in the afternoons is I coach the distance runners at the local high school. And so right. I, I personally am, I am not Kenyan. <laughs> Sorry, that's the idea <laughs> that's, of, of the paper Kenyan. Uh, it's very aspirational. So, uh, yeah, that's where that came from. That's what I figured. My next question was going to be about this. Uh, your coaching in your biography. It says of all these things, you got a million bestsellers and all these things, and then coaches, uh, you know, track and field at, at a high school nearby. Uh, okay, one more thing on this: Are there more killing series that you can tell us about that are coming? The Killing Patton. Are there more coming? There we. Uh, as I right now, as I stand here, my computer is is waiting for me to come back to it because the book is due to the publisher. In a week, and we got a little ways to go. Uh, but yeah, there is a new killing book coming out this fall. We have not announced yet, um, and hopefully, we might do a few more after that. It's uh, for me. It's a great gig. I love working with Bill. Uh, he, uh, you know, we share the we share the load equally, and he's a great yeah. storyteller. He's he's got a great way with the narrative, and so we complement yep. each other very well. Well, I told this to Kilmead. Kilmead wrote a couple of books recently. Anything that popularizes history and makes it interesting is so important. So it's great. All right. I've got to run, unfortunately. Uh, Martin Dugard, thank you. MartinDugard.com. I'll put it up. And the new new book is uh, is coming out. It's a few months away still, but Taking Paris, the epic battle for the city lights. We'll talk more about it. And I'll be talking next week more about the French resistance uh, because of my friend, uh, General Jack Singlob. So thank you, sir, for the time. My, my pleasure. Thanks very much. And I'd love to come back on. Okay, we'll do it. We'll do it. Thanks very much. We'll take a break, everybody. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the ProAmerica Report. Don't forget, visit ProAmericaReport.com, and you can listen to these interviews again. It's a great interview here, and I'll put it up on social media, too. We'll be right back. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily commentary continuing the conservative pro-family legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. Now the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. Republicans have a golden opportunity to broadly expand their influence by coming out strongly against the transgender revolution sweeping our nation. Donald Trump recognized this quickly and made several public comments to that effect. Sadly, as on many issues, Trump's comments were stronger than that of Republicans in Congress who should be taking the lead. Rather than meekly objecting, the GOP should champion this issue and tap into the support of most Americans. We don't need boys competing in girls' sports. And we certainly don't need children getting dangerous sex change surgeries. The transgender invasion is jeopardizing the GOP as the Olympic champion turned transgender woman, Caitlyn Jenner, announced her bid for California governor as a Republican. Many Republicans may salivate at the opportunity of capturing the governor's seat, as Arnold Schwarzenegger famously did nearly two decades ago. And they may hope that Jenner could appeal to crossover voters in La La Land. Conservatives should not be fooled into sacrificing our principles in the hopes of getting more votes. 
Americans care much more about protecting women than they do about Caitlyn Jenner. In January, a bill signed into law by California's soon-to-be-recalled Governor Gavin Newsom began requiring the state prison system to ask every individual entering its custody to specify their personal pronouns and gender identity. Jumping at the invitation, 261 California prison inmates have requested transfers to prisons aligning with their gender identity, with 255 of them biological males who say they now identify as women. California requires that prisons process these requests, as do laws in Massachusetts and Connecticut. As if this wasn't bad enough, California Democrats are also pushing legislation that would impose fines against department stores which separate clothing and toys by gender. The Republican Party should seize on this unique moment in which the entirety of the Democrat Party has so hyperextended themselves to the left that a sideways look would be enough to make their whole revolution collapse on itself. Normal Americans don't want men in women's prisons. They don't want boys in girls' locker rooms. And they don't want male athletes competing in girls' sports. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report with Ed Martin, president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. For 50 years, Mrs. Schlafly promoted grassroots efforts to rally conservatives. Today, you can harness the power of social media by going to phyllisschlafly.com and sharing these commentaries with friends across the country. Get started at phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Let's wrap things up as we head into the weekend uh, and do a little um, do a little uh, debunking, a little debunking, okay? And this one's this, uh, just had to put this under the category of um, stories about something that you knew was true, but you hadn't seen covered in a long time, okay? So this is the, this is the story. Again, it's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Go to ProAmericaReport.com, sign up for the daily email, and get what you need to know there each morning, uh, Monday through Friday at uh, 8 a.m. East Coast, uh, 5 a.m. Pacific, and also see these great interviews over there. But um, So after the November election, there was briefly a discussion of um, voting machines. And then it was described uh, by the media as not not an appropriate conversation. Now, you have to sort of do a do a little bit of digging. And so actually, some of it's disappeared. And you have to go into the Wayback Machine, which is a, a device to search the Internet for stuff that was there and is gone. Um, but if you do, you'll find that there were symposia and uh, essays written, research documents on the question of can we secure our voting machines in America, and these all happened after the 2016 election, because the narrative was Russia, 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 hacking the election, and so there were lots of essays. The one I'm most familiar with, and, and lots of research, was a lengthy document by the University of Pennsylvania Wharton that looked at the uh, the ability for machines to be secured, and they basically said, hard to see how they could be secured. I'm, 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 I'm a little bit overstating it, but they basically said there's lots of holes in this. Well, come now, comes now, uh, an essay that is out on uh, Politico. And the essay on Politico is about, well, it's about the election machines. And it's, it's the title 
title is One Man's Quest to Break Open the Secretive World of American Voting Machines. Now, let me tell you, I was there at the birthing of the voting machines because after 2000, the mess of the 2000 election with lots of different kinds of ways that there were games being played in St. Louis, where I was living at the time, the games were that there was a judge who decided to leave the polls open. The judge in in St. Louis City, a judge about two hours before the polls closed, I think it was that close, but said, we're going to keep the polls open not till seven, but till nine. And within minutes of that decision, there were robo-dials and calls going into the community saying, we got buses, we got people, don't quit, keep coming. And everyone said, well, you know, it seemed kind of coordinated and all that. So, But after that, there was also, of course, Florida. There was a bunch of places, but what I was most familiar with that. And so there was lots of questions about and then And, and Kit Bond, then Senator Kit Bond, uh, went and dug into it. And he was one of the lead um, proponents, at least he was one of the proponents of the Help America Vote Act, which basically gave a lot of money for local jurisdictions and states to upgrade their systems. But it gave some strings. And one of the strings which they had to get out of the punch card because the punch card was what was so problematic in Florida and other places. Hard to tell, you know, hanging chads, all that stuff. Well, so most jurisdictions by 2005, when I was made chairman of the Board of Elections in St. Louis, they had money to go buy machines. And they were buying scanner machines and they were buying electric machines and they were trying to address how you could do, say, voting if you were handy capped or blind with these different machines. There was a lot of complexity and a lot of money. And so there's a lot of companies involved. And the companies that were involved were Diebold was one, ES&S, and uh, um, some other names that have since changed a couple times. Dominion didn't exist by that name. But there was a rush. It was a gold rush. And the companies, some of them, Diebold came out of banking, you know, and credit cards and others. And then after the 2005, 6, 7, um, they all combined. They went from like five or six machine companies to two or three, maybe three total. But there really was at the time, even then, it was hard to understand all about them. You know, you were sort of getting up to speed. And what we kind of settled on in our uh, commission when we purchased machines was had to have a paper trail, which could be verified. It couldn't only be a machine and had to be off the internet, right? It had to be unplugged from the wall. Um, and and that, was, that was the two things that we... And so we went ahead. Well, again, this Politico article, which is interesting, it's coming up now, and I wonder why. Maybe it's because it wants to cast doubt on the next elections. Um, maybe that's it. But it's a story of a guy who went to University of Penn and was a very bright guy. They called him one of the, you know, super whiz kids, and he got a a degree from the Wharton School, and he dug into this question of the election systems, the the machines. And what he basically says in this lengthy essay is, you just can't figure it out. And it's kind of strange that something as important of elections is really secretive, and you really can't get into it. You you know, now, we've heard this, by the way, in jurisdictions where there were questions about the machines, people would say, can we see the source code? Can we review? None of that's allowed. Proprietary is what they say. But you end up with a secretive system without transparency in one of the most important aspects of American life. And so, again, where was this conversation, this research in this political article, a political article three, four, five months ago? Because that's all a lot of people were saying. And there's lots of people that are persuasive about saying, hey, these systems, well, they, they at least were hackable. And I don't think anybody denies that now, right? There's no system that's not hackable. Even if you say, well, the machine, the counting machine's not plugged into the wall. The poll books are. The poll books that actually do the database, you know, do the registration. But but no matter what, there's there's no one that thinks that everything is, you know, we've now seen pipelines hacked and governments hacked and all the rest. 
So where was this article before? Because you weren't allowed to. In fact, Dominion has sued who? Sidney Powell, sued Mike Lindell. I don't know if it's sued Rudy Giuliani, but Dominion has sued a bunch of people for just raising questions. Well, not that's more. They've said that they've defamed them. But I got to tell you, in a defamation, I think I'd get the Politico article out. If I'm Mike Lindell, I, my lawyers, I'd say, well, let's talk to this guy as an expert witness about how how secretive and therefore how lacking in transparency and therefore how much doubt is raised about these processes. So I'll put this up on social media. But here's the thing. If we're going to have another election in just a year, and in some places, New Jersey and Virginia, you're going to have elections in four months. Don't we need some transparency on these um, election systems? Don't we have to have it? Isn't that a federal issue? Almost a Department of Justice issue. We'll see. We'll see. All right, we got to run, everybody. Have a great weekend. I'm looking forward to being back next week. Thank you, as always, to our great producer, Anoa, as well as uh, Joanna, who helps us book the great guests. Everybody have a wonderful weekend. Look forward to talking to you next week. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Talk to you then. America Report on The Answer, San Diego.